In the early 20th century, a person named Khuri Behnam Bedria wrote a chronicle called Tawarikh al-Mosul, which could be translated as Histories of Mosul, or maybe Chronicles of Mosul. Omar Mohammed spoke with Chris Grayton about this chronicle in a Paris cafe in March of 2018. Are you sure it was recording? Yeah, it's recording. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's recording, for sure. Omar said Badria had good reasons for wanting to write this history. He was working at a time of great change, when Mosul was transitioning from being part of the Ottoman Empire to being part of the new state of Iraq. Omar said that Bedria had good reasons for wanting to hide what he wrote, and so Bedria's account of history was concealed beneath a book cover that suggested something quite different. The beginning is a religious prayers, but then it's hidden with the manuscript. Bedria's history of Mosul described the everyday life of the city, and the region's connections to places that are now on the other side of borders from it, places like Aleppo, Mardin, Diyarbakir. Because of that, what Bedria was writing, it was dangerous. And somehow I understand now why he was hiding his manuscript. He didn't want this to be published, at least in his lifetime, because it was more dangerous for him. He was criticizing uh, uh, politics, criticizing the societies, criticizing the government. It's no accident that Omar would be interested in this hidden history of Khuri Bahnam Bedria. Omar too has a past history as an undercover historian. For several years, he operated a blog about Mosul that chronicled daily life under ISIS, first from Mosul and then after he fled in 2015 from abroad. It was called Mosul I. What Omar saw, we saw. Except we never saw Omar. To protect himself and his family, he concealed his identity by adopting personae to tell these stories of his home. His accounts challenged the propaganda of ISIS and Western misconceptions of his city alike. In December of 2017, Omar revealed his identity to the world and to those closest to him in the world. When he told his mother, she said she knew he had been up to something. Omar's story has been told many times in the media since his decision to identify himself. But today, we'll be focusing on an untold but important part of Omar's tale, history itself, and how it has been a part of his story of hiding, identity, and resistance from the very beginning. With Omar, as with most historians, it's difficult to disentangle the past and the present. Where does Khuri Bahnam Bedria's formerly hidden chronicle of early 20th century Mosul end? And where does formerly hidden Omar Muhammad's chronicle of early 21st century Mosul begin? And how do we tell a story of these different histories simultaneously? I'm Sam Dolby. And in this special episode of the Ottoman History Podcast, we'll explore these questions. Now, let's get back to Omar. In, back to 1996, I was with my mother at my grandmother's house. They were discussing the share of my mother with an old house belongs to one of my mother's grandfathers. What began as a discussion of inheritance, however, turned into history. And his grandmother used a word whose meaning Omar didn't quite understand. My grandmother, this is what I remember because this changed my whole life. 
she said we are Ottomans. She used her very special and old accent, mostly accent. What do you mean? But I didn't get. I didn't get. Didn't get an answer. Omar, ten years old at the time, tried to find answers outside his home. So he went to a bookstore and he bought something that he hoped might explain the term Ottoman. It was a calendar, but it was disappointing. This document of timekeeping in the present did not provide any information about the Ottomans, whose empire had fallen many decades before. Nor did the calendar explain why Omar's grandmother used this word to describe herself in 1996. But the whole exchange got Omar thinking. Uh, from that time, I, I began to, to, to read more about the Ottomans. What are they? Why we are called Ottomans? While in the school, the teacher of history saying we are Iraqis. So from, from that time, this the sense of history, trying to understand more about my grandmother's accent, why it's different, and why she's always referring to us as Ottomans. My grandmother saying he's, we are Ottomans. My grandmother has an Ottoman certificate of birth. Everything is Ottoman around me. April the 10th, when the Americans just arrived to Mosul. They took control of Baghdad in 9th of April, but in Mosul 10, just like in, 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 in 1918. It was 17 in Baghdad, 18 in Mosul. It took them one day to, to arrive. However, I was out with some friends close to a mosque. It was Friday. I still remember this as it just happened. And you're a teenager at the time. 17 years old. I just became 17 years old two days after the, before the, because I was born uh, 8th of, of, of April. And it's funny also to say that the regime or Ba'ath Party was established 7th of April 1947 and uh, 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 was gone or fall uh, 9th of April. So I, I'm just in the middle. <laughs> See what I said about historians having a hard time disentangling the past and the present? The date of the American occupation in 2003 leads back to the British occupation of Iraq during World War I, which leads him to his own birthday, which leads him to the founding of the Ba'ath Party, which leads him back to the American occupation and what he saw that day. There was a preacher in the mosque before the American arrives. He was calling, using the, the Iraqi slogan, Allahumma uh, ra'i God shall protect the president and the people. Just a few minutes and everything changed. 
two Humvees of the Americans arrived with a tribal leader and this preacher turned out from praying for the president into saying and crying, shouting out, this is the moment of freedom. We are free now. God has defeated the tyrants, referring to battle. I was just 17 years old and I was shocked. How could someone change everything in a few minutes? This is one of the questions driving Omar and his work. How do people describe who they are and what they want? And how does that change according to different political circumstances, whether we're thinking about his grandmother in the midst of a discussion of inheritance, or we're thinking of the preacher in the mosque at the beginning of the American invasion? Before they arrive, he was talking in a different way. Why he is doing this now? So I started to to question myself and to start to ask, to, to start to learn more. When he began work on his master's degree, he chose a subject that connected to some of his own experiences. I decided to study uh, the French occupation on Egypt and to study the chronicles of the, the, the only Egyptian historian who wrote and documented the, the uh, French occupation. It was, only, it was also three years, just like ISIS. The historian whose chronicle Omar chose was a guy named Abdurrahman al-Jabarti. His work is famous because he described everything having to do with Napoleon's occupation of Egypt, which began in 1798. He described military tactics, as well as the famous army of intellectuals who accompanied the French. He also described the Arabic language proclamation that the French released, in which they described themselves as the true Muslims, and Napoleon as the savior of Egypt. Ajabarti actually made fun of this document. He pointed out grammatical mistakes, like where adverbs were redundant and where letters had been mistakenly omitted. Ajabarti also described the impact of the French presence in everyday life. In one passage of the chronicle, he noted that the French had a habit of defecating in full public view and didn't even wash themselves after. So he recorded in great detail what invasion looked like, and it meant being told in grammatically incorrect Arabic that Egypt was being saved, and it meant the people who were to be saving Egypt were emptying their bowels wherever they liked. For Omar, reading a Jabarti's chronicle was a powerful experience. Omar told me that it showed him how history wasn't simply something that one did at a distance from events. A Jabarti's chronicle was a record of unfolding history, and Ajabarti continued his work even after the French were forced to leave. He was critical of no less a figure than Mehmed Ali, the Ottoman governor of Egypt, who many see as the founder of modern Egypt. Yet as the historian Jane Hathaway has written, Ajabarti revealed antipathy and loathing toward the governor. As a result, the state attempted to buy all the copies of Ajabarti's chronicle and its criticisms of Mehmed Ali so as not to allow them to circulate. It's even rumored that Ajabarti's own son was murdered under order from those close to Mehmed Ali. So for Omar, Ajabarti represented quite a formidable figure, an intellectual who chronicled everyday life at immense personal cost. From that time, I was observing observing the change that is happening in my city. Things were extremely changed. Uh, new vocabularies, a new language, uh, a new discourse, 
things were used before 2003 are no more used. It's a shame if you use them. This kind of uh, 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 vocabularies to define the people uh, using the apostas, using the spy, using... I, I never heard this before 2003. So it was, it was completely different life for me witnessing this but I was so close to because I was writing documenting every day as Omar experienced the violent changes and new vocabularies of the American occupation he looked to history as a way of making sense of what was happening he was also thinking about what it meant for Mosul to be part of Iraq and what connections the region had to places beyond national borders I remember uh, in 2000 uh, 2012 we had a conference in the University of Mosul. We were using some songs, folklore songs, from Mardin in this conference. And the professor asked, who would understand what this singer is saying? No one understood. But then I took this song to my grandmother. She's from old Mosul. I mean, I myself couldn't understand the what, what he was saying, I didn't think that even it was Arabic. So I asked my grandmother to listen to this song. I, I mean, I was, I was really surprised. She said, this is a very old mostly song. How did you get it? She understood everything. Now, now they, are, they are still using this song. It's called Dalali. Dalali, Dalali. It has mostly dialect. So Omar knew the song to be from Mardin, which is in southeastern Turkey, and he thought it wasn't even Arabic. But Omar's grandmother not only understood the song, she also knew it to be a distinctive song of Mosul. This happened, Omar explained, because the dialect of Mosul had changed so much since the 1930s and 1940s. Just as in many places around the world at this time, in Iraq there was an effort to create a pure national language. Doing so in Mosul was no small challenge, because the region had long been a place where languages blended into one another. In the mid-20th century, the Mosuli writer and doctor Dawood Chelebi, for example, published a few compendia of non-Arabic words found in Mosuli dialect, with origins in Aramaic, Chaldean, Persian, Kurdish. And he intended to write lexicons of Turkish, Central Asian, Greek, Latin, Italian, French, English, and Russian loanwords, too. Omar told us that Chelebi is also notable for having advocated for Latinizing the Ottoman alphabet in 1902, alongside other reformers within the empire. Chelebi's own life was deeply shaped by the Ottoman Empire. He was trained in the military medical college in Istanbul, and can be thought of as part of what Michael Provence has called the last Ottoman generation, those figures trained in Ottoman institutions who ended up building post-Ottoman states. And so when Omar's grandmother could understand the song from Mardin, she was also remembering, in a way, Mosul's forgotten linguistic past. And she was also offering a clue as to why she had called herself an Ottoman in 1996. The music of Mosul belongs to this region. I feel more happy and more comfortable when I listen to Oud coming from Mardin. Uh, uh, the, f the infamous musician of Mosul, Osman al-Mawsali, he was, he used to sing in 
uh, in Ottoman Turkish. He used to sing in the Ottoman style, in the Mardin style, in the uh, Diyarbakir style. Most of his works were published in uh, the Ottoman provinces. He's not known by people coming from southern Iraq. He's well known in Aleppo. So for Omar, the musician Osman al-Mosli offered another answer to the question of why his own grandmother had described herself as an Ottoman in the 1990s. Osman al-Mosli was born in Mosul in 1854, and after getting smallpox and going blind as a child, he learned to recite the Qur'an and became involved with the Qadariya Sufi order. He would go on to live for long periods of time in Cairo and Istanbul, and a biography of him by Adil al-Bakri notes how on Fridays, Al-Mosli would recite the Qur'an in Istanbul's famous Hagia Sophia Mosque, where people would marvel at the beauty of his voice. His life reflected a time period in which Mosul was part of a different political entity, and his music brought together the traditions of a region today extending beyond Iraq into northeastern Syria and southeastern Turkey. After all the change, the extreme change happened in the city, came 2014. Mosul was occupied by ISIS on 6th of June 2014. Looking at them with their cars, with their uniform, with their flag, this was different. It was a state. Yeah. Or trying to make yeah. a state. And I mean, they brought their state with them. They brought their administrations with them. There's no shortage of examples of how history has been used to justify military invasion. We can even start with the subject of Omar's master's thesis. Remember how I said Ajabarti made fun of the grammar of the French intellectuals' Arabic language proclamation? Part of what they were saying was that Napoleon was actually a true Muslim, and that he would be freeing the country from tyranny. And this would happen again and again. When the British occupied Baghdad in 1917, General Maud proclaimed that the British were freeing Iraq from what he called the tyranny of strangers, by which he meant the Ottomans. When the Americans invaded in 2003, George W. Bush claimed the war was to free the people of Iraq. Each of these justifications rested on an understanding of history. When ISIS took over Mosul in 2014, they too used history. As Omar explained, they enacted measures in line with their understanding of early Islam. In other words, like many conquerors before them, from Napoleon to the Americans, they made history a battlefield. But ISIS also did this in new ways. Omar explains this, and how it shaped his response. This gave me an idea of... I mean, that ISIS is using the history, which means ISIS is not here for a few days. ISIS is here to stay. This is different... You have to take action. You have to immediately take action. And my action was to start documenting everything I see. Starting from the night of the attack, I'm still documenting until now. The idea in the beginning wasn't to publish online. It was, I mean, to be honest, I didn't understand the danger at that time at that moment, because things weren't, I mean, ISIS wasn't asking the people to follow the Sharia law in the very beginning. 
Isis was more busy with different things. So I didn't have this idea of publishing everything or let me say in an organized way. I was using my personal Facebook account until one of my professors sent me a message. He wasn't in, 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 in Iraq. He said, Omar, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Be careful. You are dealing with the Islamic State. You are not, uh, this is a very dangerous game you are playing. So when he told me this, I said, no, let me change my uh, game here. So I closed my personal account and established what's globally known now as Musal Eye, or the Eye of Musal, as they used to, to call it. From that moment, I recognized that, or I realized that writing the history, only writing the history is not enough. We are dealing with an online historical narrative. It's not like the old historical traditions. Writing the history, and there will be a manuscript, someone will copy this manuscript, and will... No, it's different now. We are dealing with an online history. ISIS is producing its history online. So if I don't use the same method, uh, I will lose. I mean here I will lose, I mean Mosul will lose. I will lose, Mosul will lose. Omar's love for his home city is so great that at times the boundaries between the two seem to disappear. So I started to document everything I see. I mean, making sure that I write only what I see. Because I know how important in the future to have a history written by someone who witnessed what he wrote himself. Not like he heard from someone. This will be more difficult to verify. Because ISIS had something I couldn't have. ISIS had the media and had the uh, cameras uh, uh, in, in terms of comparing between the historical materials the text will lose with the video the video will give more facts than the text the text is just what you write how could we make sure it's true and here I decided also to record videos as well in order to to support my narrative. Then I started to write every day. After a few months I realized like there's two narratives floating in the space. ISIS's narrative and the narrative of Musul I. So ISIS is no more alone in the city. They can't impose their narrative. I mean every day going out, observing the life. Also, at the same time, trying to get more, uh, trying to get access to more information. I was thirst of getting information. Knowledge is power. The more information you have, the more you can control your enemies. When I got more accurate information, 
Musarai became more effective both globally for the international media and also in the city. ISIS would, wouldn't be able to lie again. Uh, and this is why, why, why ISIS hated me that much. Because ISIS is using all this technology in order to produce a video of a peaceful city under the, their rule, this could be destroyed only by one post written by Musarai. With this, with this danger, with all of these uh, uh, observations going out, or sometimes even uh, uh, spending long time inside the hospital, because in the hospital where you get the accurate records of who was killed, how many, where, when. So Omar was doing the work of a chronicler, and in some ways, a journalist. People living in other ISIS-controlled areas were taking similar measures, such as in Syria, with the grassroots media organization Raqqa is being slaughtered silently. Anonymous blogging in English also has a history in Iraq, where the blogger Riverbend wrote for years at a site called Baghdad Burning during the American occupation. I went and looked back at it recently, because I remember reading it at the time. It starts with the oh-so-blogger beginning, I never thought I'd start my own weblog. And the first post also includes the following warning, expect a lot of complaining and ranting. She kept it up, chronicling children killed by American soldiers, frustration at corruption of local politicians, and the annoyances of power cuts. Almar's work is in this tradition, and it had great costs. His narrative of present-day history was not hidden in a prayer book, as with that of Khuri Bahnam Bedriya, with whom we began this episode. But Omar's own identity was hidden, and the personal price was high. But people were reading about the daily life. They weren't reading about what I was living in this city. What I witnessed, uh, witnessing all the executions publicly, uh, running from a place to another, trying to find a way, an effective way, to hide what I have just wrote. But trying to hide this, and you are living with a family, not alone. And uh, uh, if ISIS would find me, or would kill me, uh, they will not uh, get rid of me, only just Omar. No, the whole family. And they will start following, tracking every single person related to this family. They will always be suspected. So trying to protect myself and to protect the chronicles and to protect my family all in the same time. This and also witnessing the, the, the portal movements in the city. This led me to make a decision in March 2000. 15. Simply just to die. I, 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 not to kill myself in the, uh, or, or to, to, to commit suicide, no. But to explode all these hidden feelings inside me. So I went out 
smoking publicly, having what I called it at that moment, uh, tea party, close to what I love the most, Tigris River. Waiting for ISIS to come to find me. I was waiting, there were many people. I thought like if ISIS is not here, some of these people will will do something, will, will, will tell them. So it was a definitive decision. But this, this didn't happen, I didn't die. Even though I felt myself like I just died and I am living a new life, which helped me a lot. Next day after I decided to do this, I also decided to come back to continue my work. But also to keep myself with my family, my friends, as a normal life. So living with different characters, I invented as Musalai. Also trying to protect my normal character as Omar. Trying to preserve the history, going online, uh, being afraid of getting caught by ISIS through following me through the IP. His life had become a play of sorts, his self divided into different characters who exited the stage as their counterparts appeared. He became characters, as he said, to protect himself. One was Ibn al Athir a name he took in honor of the historian in the 12th and 13th century who moved between Mosul, Diyarbakir, and Aleppo. Another of his characters was Maurice Milton. The first name came from the rebellious lemur in the film Madagascar. The last name was in honor of John, the author of Paradise Lost. Omar would post under these names on Mosul I's Facebook group. He also encouraged others to do the same. In mid-2015, he told me that he made a call through Mosulai for people in the city to revolt in perhaps the most early 21st century way possible, by creating fake online accounts to convey the truth of what was happening. He didn't receive many responses. When one young woman got in touch with him, Omar told her not to trust anyone, including himself. She went on to write under the name Rachel Corey, a reference to the American international solidarity activist killed by an Israeli bulldozer in Gaza in 2003. This writer has still not identified herself, nor has Omar ever met her. I think, even though I left Mosul late December 2015, even after I left Mosul, I continued getting information because I created a network. This, I, I, I discovered this after I really, uh, revealed my identity. Many people contacted me and they said, we were afraid to surface or to, 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 to check Muslim. What we were doing is, we were asking our relatives by phone, they, are, they were out of Muslim, to check Muslim to give us news. I mean, this, is, this, this made me really feel happy and that Muslim was really, I mean, needed. It's not about me. I'm just only one person. I'm talking about something who, someone who took the action to say to ISIS no, when 
many people couldn't even talk. This is why also also I, I use this that I defeated ISIS. It doesn't mean that I was fighting as a soldier. No, I defeated them on my battle with them. My my battle is history. ISIS couldn't impose its narrative. Ever the historian, Omar could not help thinking of how his own work might be useful to historians in the future. Not totally unlike Ajabarti's first draft of history proved useful to Omar. Now, I am happy and I am sure after many years when someone will come, an Orientalist, uh, uh, someone from uh, uh, Western University going to study the history of Muslim in this period, he will find different narratives, not only one narrative. And you are also a historian, and you know how difficult to study the history only through one narrative. This, this sense of history was empowering me to continue, to continue writing more and more with more details. It doesn't matter, important, or not important details, just write down. There will, people, there will be people who will find it important in the future. So that's also told me that history is not only about, uh, about the history itself or about the past. History is about the future and that we can create our future by writing our history. As time passed, Omar's role changed, not just as someone who records, but as someone who advocates. Mosul I spearheaded the effort to rebuild the library of University of Mosul. He's also been involved in calling for the New York Times to return some of the thousands of documents related to ISIS that it removed from the country. And he even helped arrange for a lion named Simba and a bear to find new homes. Amidst the crushing campaign to retake Mosul from ISIS, Omar's knowledge of the city became especially important. He called his blog Mosul Eye, and here he was, the eyes not only seeing what was happening, but also making what was happening visible in a way for people to survive. I used to receive coordinates and information of trapped people in the old city, especially in the old city, because it was the most difficult battle in Mosul. When I received the coordinates, because of my knowledge of the map of Mosul, and because the, the people, they don't know how to, to be precise on geolocating their location. So I asked them to just give me a sign. Is there a mosque, a school, any sign? So I can geolocate them on the Google map. And I sent this through a journalist to the International Coalition, either to stop bombing, or if the troops are close to them, to rescue them. You see, Mosul is more, Mosul I, I would say, Mosul I, more about writing the history, but also interacting with the daily life of the city. Like a walking history. Right. Using, using the history of Mosul in the past and the writing of the history, the current history, this mix of, of, of writings in order to make 
the future or the life better. I mean, this is what also Nietzsche says about knowledge. Is it just to get knowledge for the sake of knowledge? No, it's just to get the knowledge for the sake of making the life better. We've told this story more or less chronologically. Omar hears about the Ottomans. Omar sees the Americans coming. Omar sees ISIS coming. But now we go back in time. After all, Omar is not just writing the history of Mosul. He's writing the history of the history of Mosul. The different ways that people have told this story and the ways that locals have done so differently than outsiders. But it's not like about the uh, history itself. It's more about why history of Mosul was written. I am using some uncovered manuscripts belongs to four historians. They are all Mosulis from Mosul, but they present, represent different uh, backgrounds. The four manuscripts are by Khouri Bahnam Bedriye and Dawood Chalabi, both of whom have already been mentioned, as well as Suleiman Asayir and Abdushabar Jumart. These manuscripts, they represent a unique local narrative of the history of Mosul. Because, I mean, the history of Mosul have been always studied through a, an official narrative, either the British or the Ottoman or later the Iraqi narrative. But these manuscripts were produced inside the old city of Mosul, which is the core and the heart of the whole province of Mosul. And they were produced by people who were really uh, uh, actors in the daily life of the city. They had a good understanding of the place of this city. This city. Also, all of them are Ottomans. They share the same historical background. Uh, they were born uh, during the Ottoman rule, uh, growing up and witnessed the fall of the Ottoman Empire, uh, uh, witnessed the British occupation, and witnessed the emerge of the new or the modern Iraq state. I never see saw them in their books, text. They use this like, I am Iraqi or I am Arab. They say, I am Mosul. He write his name, and the end, he, he, he put al Mosul. It doesn't matter, he's Christian, Shiite, uh, 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 Muslim, doesn't matter for them. He's Mosul. This changed. For the first time, let us try to study Mosul within the Mosul context. Part of writing the history of Mosul from the perspective of Mosul is thinking beyond state boundaries, thinking more in accord with the geography of music embodied by someone like Osman Mosuli, or the dialect that Omar's grandmother knew. As many of the British uh, scholars, they try to always say that Mosul is always part of Iraq, it always has been part of Iraq. I don't agree with this. It's not about using the history to force a city to be part I mean, administratively or 
uh, at least politically, Mosul could be part of this region. But culturally speaking, no, it's not. So reading and studying their works in order to understand in which region should we put Mosul. In which region should we put Mosul? This is a difficult and a controversial question. Mosul is in Iraq today, but it has always had connections beyond Iraq's borders. We know this from the work of people like Dino Khoury and Sarah Shields. On the one hand, from the 18th century onward, economic networks had been pulling Mosul closer to Baghdad. But on the other hand, even on the eve of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, Mosul's economic connections to places like Mardin and Aleppo remained. So it's not a simple matter of saying Mosul should or should not be part of Iraq. Still, debates about this issue have been politically explosive. In the 1920s, Turkey and Britain argued over the identity of Mosul's residents in the League of Nations. More recently, such issues have come up in relation to sectarian partition plans after the American invasion. Omar is arguing for a more expansive understanding of Mosul's place in the region as a way of doing justice to the diverse cultural heritage of Mosul that still exists and offering reminders of what has been erased. Another part of rethinking where Mosul belongs requires seeing sectarianism in different terms as a historical process rather than an inevitable fact. But what I'm trying to say is we should understand sectarianism more beyond the religion. We should understand it within the geographical, the cultural, and especially what happened and why this sectarianism became the, the theme of this region after Mosul became part of Iraq, which means they cut it down communities from their roots, putting a small Christian minority in uh, what they call it now, Nineveh Plains, and bringing uh, Shia, putting them with Sunni, small uh, 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 communities, putting them all together, of course they will have sectarianism. Khouri Bahnam Badria himself had an interesting explanation for why the meaning of belonging to these communities was changing. Omar explains. He mentioned, or he, he talked about this manuscript, referred to why this happened. He said because of the fall of the Ottoman Empire. We lost the trust. And, and this is also why many of the Christian communities appeal to the British government asking them for, for protection because they didn't understand what's happening now. There's something important about Mosul. You know Mosul has uh, 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 six gates. One of these gates called Babul Iraq or the gate of Iraq, which means once you are leaving this gate, you are moving to But we don't have a gate for Aleppo. We don't have a gate for uh, Mardin. Aleppo was the gate of Mosul to Europe. From Mosul, 
they were sending and exporting goods to Aleppo and these mostly merchants had their offices based in Aleppo then to Europe I mean the textile uh, different kind of, of goods it was a very strong connections in addition to Aleppo there were connections even further afield India one of the famous mostly families uh, they were known of horse trading they had their office based in Mumbai but Mosul's connections to surrounding areas would change with the end of the Ottoman Empire and this brings us back to Omar's grandmother's words what did she mean when she said she was Ottoman what did they hear from their uh, ancestors from their parents um, I believe that Many of the... She, she died in 2015. She was aged like uh, 92 years old. I realized I see this now through my study. That the people of Mosul still They are more related to the old roots and culture. Not only Muslims believe me, even the Christians, even the Yazidis. Because through the, the, the uh, manuscripts I investigated, I saw within a small Christian brotherhood writing his name. Then I am from Mosul, of the Ottoman nation, nationality. And why would he say? And this was like 19, 1931. It's not about to say we belong to Ottomans. No, this is not what they mean. They mean culturally we belong to this culture. Culturally, we belong to this region. Culturally, we belong to this identity. Yeah. For Omar, calling Mosul an Ottoman place nearly a century after the end of the Ottoman Empire means thinking beyond the boundaries of nationalism, which for many years had presented the Ottomans as yet another foreign oppressor. And this is a time when many in Mosul are thinking about the past as a way of making sense of the present, including someone like Mosuli writer Ghada Sadiq Rasul, who, like Omar, escaped ISIS. Her 2016 novel Shatat Ninawa, or The Dispersed of Ninawa, features a narrator who insists that the best of everything lies in the past. The songs were better in the 50s. The schools were better in the 50s. And the narrator says that using the word neighbors even inevitably refers to those from the 1950s. Omar isn't lost in the past, though. He's thinking about it, writing about it, sure, and he's going to continue to do so. After all, he's confident that he now has a supply of something that has been at the center of so much of his thinking. Time. I didn't publish everything, actually, on the internet. Still lots of materials not published. There will be time. We've taken you to the present and returned to the past. We've even talked about the future. Yet as I listen to the interview, I notice that Omar uses the same words for his work that he uses for his historical sources. 
They offered chronicles of the city. He offered a chronicle of the city. They are experienced in the daily life of the city. He is experienced in the daily life of the city. It might be comforting to think about time as a progression of events and dates. But of course, chronology is a conceit for telling stories. In real life, Omar is in dialogue with Abdurrahman al-Jabarti, the early 19th century chronicler of Egypt under French occupation and after. Omar is in dialogue with Khouri Bahnam Badria, the early 20th century chronicler of Mosul, who concealed his manuscript in a prayer book. Omar is in dialogue with his late grandmother, who said she was Ottoman and had the birth certificate to prove it. He's in dialogue with all of these people about what it means to live under foreign occupation, about what it means to be Mosuli, about what it means to be a historian. Words like past and present and future don't do justice to the blending involved in this kind of work. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. You can find Omar's website at mosul-i.org. You can also find him on Twitter under at Omar de Mosul, where he frequently posts material about Mosul's cultural heritage. After so long hiding himself, he also posts selfies. On our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, you can find a short bibliography of relevant works. And please also join our Facebook group, where we encourage you to get in touch with any questions or comments. And a special thanks, as always, to our editor, Mr. Nir Shafir. Whenever he learns of a new book about Ottoman history, he has one response, and one response only. That's it for this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Until next time, take care.